First Peter 5. Everyone, if you would, First Peter 5. I have my eighth child here somewhere up in the top with Mama up there. Um, he's, he's here. I got them all in the van today. Eight kids. Praise the Lord. We're here. Lizzie's back. She, she is here. First Peter chapter 5. Just as a recap, last week I kicked off with First Peter 2, 11, uh, which... Uh, not coincidentally, uh, Beth and Matt Osborne had from the day before. Uh, they, had, they, were, they looked it up. They saw a football game. Football player had 1 Peter 2.11 on his, on his arm. And then I said, I, had, I want to start in 1 Peter 2. And they looked at each other and they said, no way is this going to be verse 11. And it was. The Lord's uh, speaking. We're drinking from the same river here. Just as a reminder, 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And so a word twice spoken in season, we want to pay attention to that. And so last week we talked about the difference between um, fleeing temptation uh, and standing and resisting the devil and uh, about the need to discern what is what and the need to flee temptation like Joseph did in Potiphar's house. But then when the devil, the, the, the prowling lion comes around to take our stand, to not try to outrun the devil. I talked about uh, a gazelle that's got a limp. Uh, it's futile to try to outrun a lion, but it's not futile to call on the big game hunters with all the ammunition and the warfare to fight against the lion. So that's why we stay. We, we, we stay and we resist the devil. It is written, it is written, it is written like Jesus did with Deuteronomy. And so, but there's times when we must flee. And uh, Steph Weissar, uh, I don't think she's here today, but she had a great word at the end of the service. She said, when we flee, we're obeying the Lord to leave temptation, but what we're doing is we're running into the arms of our loving Heavenly Father, saying, I love you more than that temptation. I love you more than that desire of the flesh that's waging war. I love you. And he picks us up and he holds us and he says, I love you too. And we feel his nearness in a very unique way. When we leave temptation, we run to his heart. I said last week that we're not running backwards when we flee. We're running forwards down the path. The temptation is to get us to exit the path of righteousness, but we must run down the path into his arms. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to watch a heart set free from temptation because they set other hearts free from temptation. Well, this week I wanted to stay in 1 Peter chapter 5 and uh, just, just spend a little bit more time there talking about the family of God. And um, you remember, uh, I'm, I'm just going to read... Uh, Let's just read uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse, uh, in, in, in verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, Peter says, and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is among you. That's really what it says there. Not under you, but among you. Watching over them or exercising oversight. Not because you must but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, eager to, to, to profit from that role, but eager instead to serve. Not lording it over ever, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief, capital C, shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, 
really the context, younger in your faith. Submit yourselves to your elders. And all of you in the body, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor, greater grace, to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under not leadership or not to each other, but under God's mighty hands, that he may lift you up in due time, comma, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Why? Because you know this. That the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. It's important, I believe, in this season for us to recognize the church in context of the family of God. The basic unit of society, it's called the building block of society. Traditionally, a father and a mother rearing godly children, which is why there's so much attack on the family right now. The building block, the pillars of society. The word family indicates structure. The word family indicates order. The word family indicates a place or belonging to. We got Thanksgiving coming up. We all know what this is, broken or not. We understand what family means. Second Timothy calls it the household of God. Paul Paul says, so if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is what? Well, God's household is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So it's really important to to interpolate the, the natural family out into the context of the corporate family of God. Now, there's a lot of other interpretation. We have the, the bride of Christ, we have the army, we have multiple different things, the house specifically. But this, and today I'm going to focus in on the family unit here. The scriptural context of disciplings are always mentioned four generational in the Old and New Testaments. So it's, it's in, in order with the age structure of natural families. So before I get to some of the biblical references of that, I just want you to think about that it's always the natural first that speaks to what second? The supernatural. And 1 Corinthians 15 plays this out for it. The natural speaks to the spiritual. The first man named Adam was a living being, but the second man named Jesus was a life-giving spirit. The seed is sown perishable first, so natural and perishable first, but it's raised how? Supernaturally and imperishable. We've got a bunch of seeds walking around here. We're going to go down into the ground. We will be raised up imperishable after this. We're sown in weakness. Anybody feel weaker as the days progress on? But we're raised in power and glory. The principle here, if you think about this, is first spoken to Abraham. And God says this in Genesis 18. For I have chosen him so that he, Abraham, may command his children and his household 
after him. This is why God chose Abraham, his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. God chose Abraham for the express purpose of working in him through many generations. It was not one man and God hanging out. It was the seed inside of him. And God says, this man gets it. This man understands what I'm going to accomplish across generational lines. He will put the DNA into his children that will carry on. Well, that's us. We are the true Israel now. In the spirit. Listen, grandpas are around 75. Dads are around 50. Sons are around 25. And babies are around babies. Four generations. And then they pass on. And they move on. This is the natural order of things. Four generations. Here's some biblical examples of multi-generational ministries. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, listen, which the Lord your God has commanded me, Moses, to teach you, that you might do them so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. First generation is Moses. Second generation is the children of Israel. The third is their sons, the third generation, and the fourth is their grandsons. Another one. Psalms 78, 5 through 6. If you would go to this one uh, real quick. If you, if you could flip there in your Bible, it's so good. Just to see it on the page. There's multiple of these, by the way, throughout, replete, throughout all the New Testament. I'm just lifting off four or five here for us to look at. Look at this. Psalm 78, starting in verse 5. He decreed statutes for Jacob... And established the law of Israel, which he commanded our ancestors, fathers, to teach their children, so the next generation would know them, even the children yet unborn, and they in turn would tell their children. First generation, our ancestors, the fathers. Second, their children. The third, the children yet unborn, and the fourth, their children after them. 2 Timothy 2.2, the famous one, Paul says to Timothy, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. First generation, Paul, his son in the faith, Timothy, third, faithful men, the fourth, others also. This is even in the first church, Acts 1.8, go to Jerusalem. Go to Judea, go to Samaria, go to the ends of the earth. Even in the early church, we see four-generation ministry work. You have Jesus as the first, the 12 apostles as the second, the 120 as the third in the upper room, and then the 3,000 as the fourth generation. I could lift off more and more, but the point is the DNA is made to travel down family lines. And we are born into a family. We are not born into individual relationship with God only. That's a short circuit of what the Lord wants to do. How to make disciples. Well, first of all, we have to understand that the church is a family model. It is not a business model. Let me say it again. The church is a family model. It is not a business model. 
where we have CEOs and we have treasurers and we have marketing and advertising, this is organic. It's maybe a little bit messy, but it's family and it's normal to have this. Family unity, therefore, is essential for the making of disciples. Why should the church be unified? Well, for the glory of God, yes. But listen, disciples do not get made in broken families very easily. It's a tough climb. It can be done. But God's way is to have a healthy, organic, functioning family so that sons and daughters in the faith explode out from there. See, the Lord is looking for godly offspring. He says... He's looking for increase and multiplication in the earth. He's looking for DNA to travel down the family lines. I am not like my dad. I'm a different person biologically. I've got his blood inside of me, but I've got my different flavor. But I got his DNA inside of me. I got that family line inside of me, and I'm carrying it on. But I've got my own history in the Lord. I've got my own calling in the Lord. Reminder, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, I urge you to imitate me. He says in 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so discipleship is not mimicking behavior, but adopting a way of life. I'm learning a trade. I'm sitting there as an apprentice watching the master work. What is the way of life that disciples are to adopt? Well, the way is obedience. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And we are not taking disciples through and memorizing the scripture one word at a time from start to finish, although that's a good idea. What we're primarily teaching them to do, parents and disciple makers, is to obey the capital T teacher inside of them. To come under the government of the Holy Spirit and to stay in step with him, yeah? The Holy Spirit wrote the scriptures and he knows all of them. He can bring them to mind. But we are teaching them, 1 John 2, to obey the anointing that is within them. You have no need that anyone teach you. You've got the teacher inside of you. Obey his voice. Listen to him and respond with a willing heart. Ephesians 4, we are learning Christ, it says. Paul says, this is not the way you learn Christ. Think about that with me for a moment. We are learning a man. We are not learning methods. We are learning a man, not memorized materials. We are learning a man, the way, the truth, the life. We are teaching disciples to stay close to his heart, discern his voice, and stay in step with a man. This is so important. It's so easy to divert from this and get into methods. No, we got to stay close to his heart. Uh, and and we got to go deep in our knowledge of him. It's through our knowledge of him, I said last night, that all of these things flow to us. Romans 8, disciples are being conformed to the image of God's son. This is not WWJD. This is WWJD. What would Jesus do? This is what is Jesus doing? W-I-J-D, Sorry. Just thought of that. What is Jesus doing? Not what would he do, that we could act like him, but he's inside me being formed. 
How is he responding in this circumstance of a piece of equipment being stolen at 2 o'clock in the morning from my shop? Just an example. (laughs) On security camera. What what is his heart for that person? Because I know what I want to do to that person. What is he doing inside of me? What is he prompting me to say and to pray for those who persecute me? This is him doing it, not me. Now, what would Jesus do? What's a good way to act? Now, what is he actually prompting me to pray for today? Bless them, Lord. Lead them to repentance. I pray that it would be restored and that they would be saved in Jesus' name. I've got this burning in my heart because Jesus is in my heart. In order, we're being conformed into his image that would be his, we would be his little brothers and sisters, little Christs, Christians, Christians, like him as he lives out through us. This is about a personal living relationship with Jesus Christ that's played out in the context of a family. We know our place here. Why am I saying all this? Well, 1 Peter 5 that we just read, I believe, plays out four different aspects of living in a healthy family. This might ruffle some feathers, and it does mine. Number one, living in the context of family requires leadership. And really another phrase that I thought of here with this is stewardship. It does not say, don't lord over the flock that you rule over. To elders it says, do not lord over the flock that have been entrusted to you. You've been given a stewardship. All of us have stewardship. And what is required of a steward, everyone? That he be found faithful. Because people do not belong to us. Children don't belong to us, parents, right? Money doesn't belong to us. Houses, temporary, short term. But we will be called to give an account of our stewardship. So to have a healthy family in my household, there needs to be godly leadership. There, shepherding, guiding, protecting, exercising oversight, never lording it over with a heavy hand, but simply stewarding in love. Secondly, to have a healthy family, there needs to be followership. Leadership, those who lead and those who follow which means there must be submission to the leadership that the Lord has placed in your life. Submission, another phrase you can think of there is honoring. Now, submission is really a cuss word at this point in the church and in our generation. We don't like the word. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, the godly leadership that the Lord has placed over them. Um... Part of the reason it's so difficult is because we've had such cruddy examples of godly leadership. That's why it's so hard. There's been abuse there, right? We all know that. But remember, David did not submit to Saul. He submitted rather to God, who placed Saul for a temporary period of time, and he did not try to subvert that. He stayed and he remained. And God honored him for it. 
So my sweet wife, Lizzie, submits to my spiritual leadership in the home. As a response, I promote her and I love her leadership and I lift her up in honor. There she is, everybody. Come on, give her a round of applause. Come down right there. The crown sits on the king's head. A godly wife is like the crown on the head of her husband. Try to separate the crown from the head of the king and see what happens. There is no. There, it's a promotion. It's an honor. It's a lifting up. She honors me. I honor her. She's not submitting to me ultimately. She's submitting to the father and the authority that he's placed in her life. Don't forget, we're called to imitate Christ who robed himself in submission. He did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but instead he humbled himself. He submitted himself and became obedient even unto death. He submitted to John's baptism. John's like, no, 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 this is not, this is, I should be submitting. He's like, no, to fulfill all the law. Who is a God like that <laughs> that does that? And how much more our little tiny minds, we're like, it's so sweet to submit. It's so sweet. Look at me. I'm standing up here. You guys are all listening to me. I get honor, honor, honor. I get nothing but honor, it seems like. A little tiny bit of, you know, all, mostly all honor, right? The Lord had me in a place of submission to my father in the faith, Sam McVeigh, for a lot of years. He did some things I disagreed with. We argued about some stuff. We had some issues, Right? But he left me there. Why? Because it wasn't primarily about me changing anything Sam ever did. It was about me learning to humble myself under the Lord's authority. Well, by God's grace, imperfectly failed again and again and again. But I stayed in that place. And now look what happened, everybody. Sam's like, you run. I'm promoting you. I want you to do well. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how hard it was to be in that place. I'm sorry. But that's what happens. We humble ourselves and we are lifted up in the proper time. And actually, when you get lifted up, you realize, oh, I needed to go lower than I ever thought I imagined. I need to go lower still. I got to go lower because higher levels, higher devils. And David did a census and hundreds of thousands of people killed. There's great responsibility. I want to be in front. I want to talk. I want to be a leader. God wants that for you too. But what he wants for you first to do is to humble yourself. Because he will not give you the steering wheel until you're ready. To, okay, so you guys get the point I'm trying to make here. Thirdly, living in a healthy family requires humility. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And I've said this before, but the verse five, clothe yourselves, meaning it means to tie on the servant's apron or overalls, the white apron that slaves wore that distinguished them from freemen. This is powerful. White clothing to cover your nakedness. Revelation three. This is white aprons that we put on here. 
Gird yourselves with humility as with a servant's garb. You put it on. You clothe yourself with humility. God doesn't clothe you with humility. You do it. That's up to us to assume the servant's role. Number four, living in a healthy family requires proximity. There is no loving the bridegroom but despising his bride. Husbands, try saying to your wife, I love your face, but I hate your body. It doesn't work. It cannot work. You cannot separate the crown from the king's head. We were saved into relationship with one another to find our place, structure in the body of Christ on the wall. And Luke read this last night at Hebrews 10. There's no forsaking the assembly of ourselves as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Does everyone see the day drawing near? Yes or no? Then we should be encouraging each other all the more. This is why the disciples met every day in the church of Acts. All the more. Reminder, the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. The temptation, the Lone Ranger Christianity mentality, is I'm good with God. I don't need all y'all people. And God says, that's not how it works. Because actually how I reveal myself to you and love you and train you and teach you is through my hands and feet and through my people. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, church, but instead with sober judgment. Where do we go from here? Well, if you don't know where to go from here, if you're struggling with leadership, if you're struggling with submission, or struggling with humility, I say start at proximity. Give yourselves fully and completely to fellowship. It's difficult to do, but the people I see most fruitful and most promoted and most blessed are those who tie on the servant's apron and give themselves to the church. From there, they learn true submission. From there, they learn true leadership. I think the Lord actually takes people who start in fellowship and giving themselves to the church and promotes them into leadership very quickly. It's my belief. Let me see if I can land the plane here. Give me just a few more minutes. If you have ought with a brother or sister in your heart, if there are certain relationships that are harder for you than others, have you ever been like me and you'll notice that the more distance you have with that person, the more you begin to doubt their motives and their heart? Anybody ever notice that? The more time you spend away from people, Drew Parrish, the more you recognize your heart kind of can turn against them. He said it. I didn't say it. He said it publicly. I'm the same way. You know, they probably posted that because they were thinking of me. They probably didn't respond the way that thumbs up was a little snarky on that text. We start to get these weird, funky, like, thought patterns the further away we get. And the Spirit dropped in my heart the other day this sentence, the devil works in the distance, meaning this, heart relationships separated by some distance, and this is the ground we give the devil to work. 
Lots of ground. The devil works in the distance. So what do we do? We close the distance and we get face to face and we have coffee or we have a hard conversation or we have dinner or two or three until we work it out. And we're like, I will not leave the table with you because I love you and we're family. And, and I want to understand your heart and I want you to understand mine. And there's no ground given for the devil to work. Love is not easily offended. So, if you have distance in your heart, or if you just got some doubt creeping in, you can't shake it, make a call. Just make a call. No agenda other than say, I love you, I just want to talk to you. I just want to hear your heart. Help me understand. So many things get usurped. The enemy's plans get usurped by just being biblical about relationship. You offended me. Bible says I need to go to you and talk to you about that. You offended me. The Bible says lay it down. Don't be easily offended. I don't need to talk to you about that. There's times. Your brother or sister sinned against you. Go tell them their fault. If they won't listen, take another one along with you. Just be biblical about these relationships and see what the Lord does. Amen.